Hello and welcome to the sixth episode in ICOCA's podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. I'm Chris Galvin and I'll be in conversation today with James Sinclair, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, a researcher and the executive director of Ethical Innovations to discuss the future of slavery, private security and the human cost of cost cutting. James, you've developed a deep interest and expertise in issues of modern slavery, particularly as it pertains to the private security industry. So can you tell us how the world of private security and modern slavery are intertwined? Um, Hi, Chris, and thanks for having me. I mean, the the world of of security and slavery have been intertwined for for millennia, really. You know, uh, the idea of slavery and war is not a new one. Uh, the the way in which what we might call modern slaves, and, and I think there are some difficulties with that terminology, which I can touch on later if you like, but the, this idea of sort of modern globalized labor exploitation and its intersection with private security is is a relatively modern phenomenon. I mean, just, just touching on quickly, if I can, the, the, the ways in which contractors have, have interfaced with with war obviously has quite an interesting history in and of itself. We could go back into the years of the privateers before the kind of monopoly of violence was taken over by the state. But actually, I've just been doing some research on the number of contractors that are in the battle space. And it's it's massively expanded in the last 100 years. I think the First World War, 200 odd contractors for each, uh, sorry, 200 odd troops for each contractor. You know, Second World War was more like 50 troops to one contractor by Vietnam, it was seven to one. It was one to one in many parts of many times during the Iraq Second Iraq War, and then more than one to one in Afghanistan uh, in terms of um, contractors to, to troops. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a lot more than that now. So there is a sort of an interesting history. It's been supercharged a bit in the last twenty years or thirty years or so as a result of several intersecting phenomena: you know, globalization outsourcing and we might call the sort of neoliberal approach to economics where governments are increasingly unwilling to undertake activities themselves and want to outsource as much of of their activities as they can. Uh, Security is an obvious one because there are lots of security companies and and, and I, I suspect people listening to this will be well aware of the history of private security companies and how they come about. But obviously, since 1990 and the sort of retrenchment from the Cold War, there's been a lot more militarily trained people looking for work. A lot, you know, the, the expansion of the professionalism of private security as, a, as an industry has meant that governments have more options in terms of finding private security guards to do things for them. And you have a lot of countries in the world where there are weak, you know, law, uh, law enforcement. There's weak uh, labour law. Um, and so you have a kind of a perfect storm for a bit of a race to the bottom on on contract price on and you know, consequentially on worker welfare and on on other issues and you know and recruitment for for private security roles often happens in poorly governed spaces and this is something I'll, I guess I'll come back to a bit later if you want but when we're talking about private security guards being recruited from from places like Nepal or Kenya or Uganda, you know, the initial recruitment, which is where a lot of the exploitation that we sometimes refer to as 
that's modern slavery or parts of modern slavery happens in in very poorly governed spaces and so it's very difficult to necessarily understand or control what's going on at that point and when you have razor thin commercial margins there's not much of an incentive to look too hard at it just one question on those numbers you mentioned one-to-one troop to contractors in Iraq and more than that in Afghanistan. Um, uh, Is that troops to private security contractors or contractors generally? Because obviously there are, you know, many logistical companies and and others involved. That's that's actually a really helpful clarification. So we're talking about overall contractors. So you're right. There is a, there's a, there's a definite um, distinction to be drawn there. So as you say, Particularly, I think, since the first Gulf War, there's been a huge push towards outsourcing of all kind of non-core warfighting tasks. So I'm sure a lot of people know kind of since the log cap contracts were put together, I think initially in Somalia and then and then for the first Gulf War, you know, a lot of the tasks, whether it's laundry or defac or or, or sanitation or what have you have all been outsourced so yes those numbers include include those guys but even so it's it's a pretty pretty solid one-way track from over the over the last hundred years and the the area i'm particularly looking at in terms of my research is sort of recruitment for diplomatic security work so both the uk and the us have been outsourcing their diplomatic security services for 20 30 years and increasingly, that is uh, that's a role that's undertaken by the big private security companies, um, and only in extremists do you find troops intervening in those uh, those sorts of circumstances. Now, you founded the Fair Labour Alliance, and you co-founded FSI International, which is a recruitment company uh, whose mission is to bring an end to modern slavery within the private security sector. So, can you tell us about? FSI's company model uh, and maybe some of the challenges that it's faced. Yeah, sure. I mean, so uh, FSI worldwide, just to just to correct that, I should just clarify, I don't work for FSI anymore, but I was there at the start and we, we, we co-founded it in 2006, largely because we wanted to find good jobs for ex-Gurkhas. Now, I'm not ex-military myself, I'm a, I'm a jobbing lawyer, so uh, I had some mates who were ex-Gurkha officers who were working in Iraq at you know, sort of 2005, six, And what they saw was a bit disturbing for them. You know, they saw the, the kind of exploitation of the third country national workers, and they saw the, the issues around Gurkha recruitment from Nepal becoming really problematic. And so we decided we wanted to set up a recruitment company that would recruit third country nationals in the way that you know, you and I might like to be recruited. So people selected on merit, properly insured, properly looked after, managed well, not having had to pay money for their jobs, which is still unfortunately a revolutionary concept. Having proper leave provisions being managed in their own language in a sort of culturally um, sensitive way and all that sort of stuff. And initially, we got some pretty good traction in the market. We, we did some some good work with several private security companies, Garda World has always been a strong supporter of the company. And we had various other various other contracts. And we, we thought, you know, perhaps rather naively at the time, that that when the governments of the US and the UK and the various EU governments that were involved in, in that theatre of war became aware of the widespread nature of particularly things like bonded labour and the sort of 
associated labour exploitation events that go on around that. Once they were aware of that, they would want a kind of clean ethical recruitment alternative. We, we, we saw we saw a sort of twin opportunity. We saw an opportunity to do some good um, from an ethical perspective, but frankly, we also saw a business opportunity. We thought, well, if the market is moving to a more ethical place, then let's be the ones who get in there first. Hasn't quite worked like that, I have to say, because FSI is still relatively small and there hasn't been a sort of race into the marketplace as we, as we were hoping. And most of the recruitment for the private security sector, as with most other sort of TCNs, is still largely based on the employee employee pays principle rather than the employer pays principle and all of the associated exploitation that comes with it. So to explain what, what FSI did that was different was that we set up our own recruitment structure in toto. So whereas almost every other company that is recruiting, um, whether it's security guards or chefs or whatever, they will rely on networks of agents and sub-agents and, and, and sort of local fixers who, who go out and find willing job seekers. And then they bring them in and they have their passports uh, sort of processed for, for, for travel, etc. Now, we identified that this network, this uh, sub-agent network, was, was the really problematic element because that was where the sort of first element of exploitation was going on, what we sometimes refer to as the, you know, the first handshake at the village level. Once, once, once that is corrupt or corrupted, everything else that flows afterwards is very difficult to clean up. So we felt it was really important to have a fully integrated recruitment system with our own people in villages um, so that uh, who were sort of rigorously selected so that we were not sort of leaving ourselves open to, 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 to um, bribery or other forms of exploitation. And frankly, we just didn't trust anybody. <laughs> we were fairly paranoid about making sure that we, we didn't, um, didn't allow ourselves to be, to be exploited. Uh, but that, you know, that's an expensive thing to do, putting together a vertically integrated recruitment network. And as a result, you know, we then we found it difficult to, to compete in the marketplace because, frankly speaking, the people we were competing against were making money hand over fist in illegal and unethical recruitment fees. And, you know, the, the norm for private security guards, if they're looking for work in somewhere like Afghanistan, is to pay somewhere between three and five thousand US dollars for their job. Now, most job seekers coming from Nepal or Kenya or Uganda won't have that kind of money lying around. So they will have to borrow it and they borrow it at very high rates of interest. And so all of this stuff compounds to create a debt bond, which is where the term bonded labor comes from. And that debt bond then hangs over them. So they don't, uh, it's not just that they have to repay the money, it's that whilst that debt is outstanding, they really don't have any leverage to complain about their, their terms and conditions of employment. So, um, and I should say, generally speaking, the private security world, those terms and conditions are, are better than they are for unskilled manual workers. You know, where the problem is really severe, if you've got people going to work on construction sites Gulf or in rubber factories in Malaysia, and they have three or four or five thousand dollars worth of debt hanging over them, plus the interest, and they owe that money to money lenders who, frankly speaking, know where their families live. Yeah, the, the chances of them complaining about any aspect of their work is zero. 
because they cannot afford to lose that job because their debt is linked to the job. Lose the job and you know the debt is payable in any event. So they're in real trouble. So you know we saw all of this happening. We thought, well, this, this isn't good. So let's try and find a way of, of cleaning up these supply chains. But it's really tough when you know, the market is 95, 96% plus based on a sort of exploitative model. And if you're a couple of Brits wandering into a marketplace and saying, yeah, we're here to clean it up. Well, good luck with that because it's, it's quite a mountain decline. And as a result, and particularly, you know, when you've got, I dare I say it, law enforcement, judges, politicians, all kind of lined up on the people who are all taking money. And I mean, this isn't just conjecture. We've had people arrested in quite senior political and administrative positions in, in labor source countries who are, who are sort of in on, on this business. So, you know, it, it, it's a really tough nut to crack. But, you know, ultimately, if we're going to be serious about trying to clean up labor exploitation, not just in the security business, but, but across the piece, then you know, a lot more investment, a lot more time and effort needs to be spent on, on the initial recruitment process. And, and ultimately, what you're saying is that those costs need to be incurred by the clients themselves. At the moment, this system, it's, the clients are getting away with not having to incur the, the recruitment costs. Uh, well, so that was, that was true initially. In, in the early stages of, of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, that was definitely true. It's not so true anymore, partly because um, the US government, I have to say, has really sort of led the way on... The, the improvement to the federal acquisition regulations, which essentially ring fence a requirement for security companies to pay for the recruitment of their personnel. And they've been very clear that not paying recruitment fees is a sort of key, key indicator of bonded or forced labor, because how else are these people going to be recruited? And so it is, it's very uncommon now for, for companies to demand workers for free in the security space, I should say. Or, and also in the space where you have US and, and UK contractors you know, directly recruiting people, they will, they will now almost always insist that they have to pay something for recruitment. The problem is that the, so the problem used to be, as exactly as you've identified, that companies didn't pay for recruitment. Uh, that has changed in relation to a lot of kind of quote unquote Western companies. It, that is still the norm when it comes to, you know, construction companies in Saudi or Qatar or Dubai, you know, they're just not paying for their workers because they never have and they don't see why they should have to. And so that, of course, is, a, is an institutionalized bonded labor problem from the start. It's slightly different in the, in the security space, as I say, because of the change of the rules and because of more emphasis being placed on trafficking and personal provisions in the US particularly, you will now have companies paying for recruitment. So the exploitative model has shifted from one where the recruiter who sits in the middle is basically just taking money from the, from the recruits. Now he's taking money from both the security company and the recruits because he's, you know, the security company say, well, we have, to, we have to pay for our recruitment. So here's $300 a man or whatever it is that they're paying, uh, which the recruiter says, thank you very much. And I absolutely promise you, I'm not taking money from, from, the, from the recruits. And then as night follows day, it still happens anyway. I should say there is a, there's a certain amount of complexity in some of this, this stuff because um, it, it really does depend on what jurisdiction you're talking about recruiting for. It depends on 
particular types of company involved, the, the sort of work that you're going for, uh, where, you know, where the, where being recruited from. But so it's, 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 I don't want to sort of be too generalized about it, but the, there are essentially a couple of models, one of which is the, is the bargain basement employee pays model, which is still absolutely the norm across most of the Middle East and, and, and places like Malaysia, where it's, it's, it's a pure exploitation model. Then you have this sort of hybrid model of what looks on the surface to be compliant because you, know, you can see the paper trail of money going from you know, Western security company to local recruiter. Uh, and then a sort of clean bill of health, apparently given by the local recruiter in terms of the the recruits and how they've been they've been recruited. Uh, and if you were to ever to ask those recruits, have you paid illegal recruitment fees? Of course, the answer will be no. Whether or in fact they have or not is a much more difficult question because you'd only find that bit out if you were to if you were to un, really do a proper audit or a surveillance job on the on that first handshake that I spoke about earlier, you know, the, the interface at the village level between the sub-agent um, and the recruit, because that is where it goes on. And being slightly generalised, I, I, I'm to most of my experience, most of my expertise and experience comes from Nepal. But a lot of this is 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 true for, for many other labour source countries. But there is, you know, there is a, there is a sort of web of, uh, of deceit that goes on. And the recruiter who's who's the licensed clean guy sitting in Kathmandu in this case can sort of plausibly deny any knowledge of what goes on at the village level and they kind of like it that way there was a there was a push years ago in 2010 11 12 for sub agents to be licensed as well as well as the, the central recruitment agencies but that kind of fell apart for several reasons firstly there's just too many of them Secondly, the central agents really didn't want to be on the hook for who their sub-agents were and have to pay fees for them. So they just weren't registering them and they were carrying on using them anyway. And, you know, there, there is a sort of a dance of the deaf going on because the law enforcement people don't really want to know because they're often being sort of paid off on the side. The agents, the central agents, don't certainly don't want any of this being regulated because they can plausibly claim that their supply chain is clean, even though they're, they're not looking into it. And there's a very good chance that they're also benefiting from the illicit payments that are being made. So there's a whole kind of web of stuff going on here, which most audits will never uncover. And unless you're really looking at it in depth, unless you put some effort and some time and some money into uncovering it, you'll never see. And there's also there's just one final point to note, which is that, and this is a slightly difficult point to make, but, you know, for the vast majority of people who are paying for jobs and who are then suffering all the exploitation that comes on the back of that, they don't see this as problematic. Now, that shouldn't be an excuse not to do anything about it. There are plenty of people who think that it should be an excuse not to do anything about it. But, but it is the norm. And, and, in, and in many cases, third country national workers see the payment of a fee to secure a job as a kind of form of job guarantee. So, you know, I've paid my three and a half, four thousand dollars or whatever it is. So I, I will therefore definitely get this job. And so and agents who are taking this money think, well, he's paid, so he's definitely going to go. The employer thinks, well, he's paid, so he's going to keep his mouth shut uh, and he's going to work hard. 
So it kind of works for everyone in the in the in in the piece. You know what, what it doesn't work for clearly is the sort of respect for international human rights and and for the rule of law because in every place these practices are illegal, uh, and in some cases they're taken seriously, in some cases they're not. But there, you know, the norm of this stuff is really is quite complex to uncover. Uh, and as I say, it shouldn't be a sort of council of despair and let's not do anything about it because it's not perceived as problematic. But we do need to recognise the fact that, you know, for a lot of the people involved in this this business, this illicit business, it is not considered out of the ordinary and not in many cases considered problematic. Now, I'd like to um, kind of hone in on this compliance issue and, and the question of audit. Um, and I should explain to folks that you are currently pursuing a, a PhD at the moment. And so you, right. have, some, yeah, you have some real in-depth uh, kind of research experience in this. I'd, I'd be interested to hear uh, your thoughts about the procurement processes that govern recruitment and management of these third country nationals and, and what the oversight mechanisms currently are in place to monitor and control the practices. I mean, you've mentioned audit. Are these practices sufficient or are they lacking? Well, so it's difficult to be generalised about the comments here because each jurisdiction obviously has its own rules. Um, I can really only speak with any kind of authority, I suppose, in relation to the UK setting because that's the that's the jurisdiction that I'm looking at and have been looking at. I'm also practicing English lawyer, so I have a little bit of sort of general legal understanding. So if I can just restrict my comments to the UK, sure. uh, there was, the history of this is, is, is sort of vaguely interesting, so I'll just situate it slightly if you like. But there, again, as many of your listeners will be aware, in the 1990s, there was a kind of free-for-all in the, in the private security game we had the Sandline affair, we had, you know, executive outcomes. And that led to a situation in which, you know, towards the end of the 90s, there was quite a lot of disquiet, certainly in UK circles, about, quote unquote, mercenary activity. And so that led to something called the Leg Report, which was um, actually the, the UK government's investigation into the Sandline affair as to whether or not the FCO was aware of what was going on. And that report made certain recommendations about how the industry should be overseen or regulated. And at that point, so sort of 99, 98, 99, there was quite a groundswell amongst UK parliamentarians for a, a fairly sort of stiff regulatory regime here because they recognised that uh, private security, armed private security activity is a a sector with significant risk attached to it and therefore you know it should be properly properly monitored now of course then what happened was 9-11 and you had this you know the world sort of tilted on its axis and um and then you know, following quickly on from that you had the invasion of afghanistan and then iraq and so this process of thinking about how to regulate private security kind of went into abeyance in fact went into abeyance for six years um, or seven years between there was a what was a, um, a green paper which is sort of uh, an early stage policy paper printed by the, the government in 2002 which set out six potential options for, for regulation of, of UK-based PMSCs engaged in activities overseas from a sort of out and they ran everything from a kind of outright ban to the sort of softest of, of self-regulation 
um, and, and you know, four options in between. And there was the sort of, you know, debate. There was a, an outreach process. You know, industry was involved in that. And and rather conveniently, I suppose you might say that period in which the the you know, the, uh, the discussion was being held about what to do coincided with the busiest period of of both Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of um, you know private security activity. And there is at least some um, evidence to suggest that that's not coincidental. Uh, so in essence, during that period, there was very little in the way of, of kind of legal structure around any of this stuff at all. Then in uh, so 2009, finally, they got around to, to thinking about what to do. And they put in place this, this sort of regime of voluntary standards. And that was done for several reasons. Obviously, by then, we were into the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So, you know, there was... It was perceived to be no money left to, to get involved in an expensive regulatory regime. There was a perception that private security, you know, UK private security companies had kind of done quite well in Iraq and Afghanistan, that it was a, an area that the UK was quite good at and therefore they should try to encourage and not sort of burden with regulation, if you want to call it that. So yeah, we ended up with this sort of very light touch voluntary, uh, voluntary standard scheme of which, of course, the International Code of Conduct is one part. PSC1 standard, which was which is an American standard, was was also adopted uh, along with ISO 18788. And, and so this sort of web of, of 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 standards became the kind of the industry norm. And and of course the intention was to try and encourage companies to 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 behave better and to 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 adopt uh, recognized international management standards in, in their activities. And it's, and it's fair to say that the professionalism of UK-based private security companies has certainly improved since the 1990s. There's no doubt about that. If you, know, you look at the way in which they are run, the professionalism of the boards, the kinds of people who sit on the boards of these companies, you know, that they are, there's definitely a, a, a marked improvement in their kind of responsibility, etc. Now, that on an, from an operational perspective, there's an awful lot that a lot of private UK-based private security companies have done that has been you know, really, really good. Lots of examples of companies that have and individuals working for private security companies who have acted you know, in an exemplary way in the battle space. So I certainly don't want to suggest that there was there's been from a practical perspective there's been some sort of failing. By and large, when they've been called upon to defend positions or or to to help out, they they've done so in a very professional manner. That's certainly worth pointing out. In terms of my area of of interest, the, the kind of bonded labour issues that underpin labour exploitation within private security supply chains, uh, the voluntary standards mechanism has been, I think. A failure, because the reliance on on kind of voluntary standards and, and audits to 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 um, to mark against those standards has not been able to penetrate the kind of web of deceit that I sort of set out for you a few minutes ago. This idea of uh, what goes on in in ungoverned spaces or poorly governed spaces in in rural parts of labour source countries. And to be honest, you know, a, a system of voluntary standards where there is a sort of commercial imperative to get things done quickly and cheaply because, you know, that's what that's what outsourcing is. You know, it's it's quote unquote efficient because margins are very 
uh, you know, margins are necessarily thin if you've got competitive tenders, and that means there isn't really the the, the sort of bandwidth to go engaging in lengthy and expensive and and comprehensive audit processes, etc. So this this kind of race to the bottom almost guarantees that there won't be any meaningful oversight of, of that difficult and hard to spot problem. Uh, and of course, there isn't. And and so when it comes to recruitment for, for private security, third country national recruitment of private security, it is now as it ever was. Uh, I, I haven't seen any evidence of any improvement. I haven't seen any changed practices really amongst the recruiters. And there seems to be, dare I say, a, a sort of willful blindness amongst many of the private security companies, many of whom kind of get the problem and they know what's happening. But if you speak to them quietly, they'll say, well, look, we just don't have the budget for this. And if we were to build the budget in for it, we would be commercially uncompetitive. So it, it's not going to happen. Um, and again, you know, many of many of them will justify it by saying, look, these guys expect to pay for their jobs. Uh, they, are, they are otherwise well looked after. So, you know, what's the problem? Others will say it is a problem and we try to we try our best to to prevent it from occurring on our, our projects. But it's very hard and, you know, we can't necessarily get right to the bottom of the supply chain because it's remote and it's difficult and expensive. Uh, all of which is perfectly fair, but it comes back to the question of should there be more government intervention? And actually, I'm not necessarily advocating for a sort of massively statist approach here where you have formal heavy-handed government regulation. That may or may not work, but even within the current system, you could do, you could do things that would make it better. You could mandate types of audit and you could pay for types of audit. So rather than relying on security companies having to find from their own budgets, money to pay for their own audits to, to, to audit against voluntary standards, the government could be a bit more um, insistent and say, look, if you're going to recruit from countries that have a well-known reputation for labor exploitation, then okay, but you need to do the following to, to, to satisfy us that you have ensured that there are no abuses in your supply chain and we will pay for the in-depth audit process that will allow you to identify that and mitigate against it. Now, of course, there are some problems with that because the government, part of the joy of, of outsourcing from a government perspective is that you don't have to think about this stuff. You, you get someone else to do it and you pay them a fee and that's that sort of job done. You get it off your desk. So the idea of wanting to get more involved and start you know, peeling back the onion and seeing what's what, that's, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of reluctance there because there's also issues around liability. What, you know, what do you do if you find all this stuff? Do you fire the company do you give them a cure notice in american language do you you know do you ban people from recruiting from particular countries i mean there's all sorts of issues that then arise but you know the oversight mechanisms are weak the regulatory mechanisms are weak that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the outcomes from a kind of operational perspective have been bad in many cases they've been quite good but from a human rights perspective it's it's pretty negative and so where does the future lie in all this? I mean, how can these mechanisms be strengthened? Do we need new mechanisms? I mean, you mentioned potentially, you know, much greater government regulation. But, but how can we ensure that this practice of monoslavery, particularly in, this, in the sector of private security, doesn't just continue on? Um, it's a really difficult question. 
Um, and there is no silver bullet. Let's be clear about that. You know, no, the people who talk about technology and say, oh, well, technology will solve it. Well, actually, in my view, technology is at least as likely to make the problem worse as better. Because if you introduce technology into an existing corrupt system, you're quite likely just to make it all more efficiently corrupt. But so we're talking about principally a corruption issue, a, a global political economy issue, exploitation issue. And you can really only start to solve it with time, effort, commitment and money. It's sort of similar. You know, it, we, we talk, we did talk at FSI about the three I's, which is insist, invest and inspect. And the insistence, you know, comes from the top, from the leadership, from generating kind of uh, norms of practice within a company uh, that this is how we behave. This is how we want to look after our people. And actually within, I have to say, just pausing there for a second, that within the military or, or, or private security, ex-military community, I've always found there to be a real camaraderie with other former military personnel. And, you know, they don't like the fact that their former comrades are being exploited in this manner. And they would really like for it not to be happening. But of course, the insist part is just the first bit. You then need to invest and inspect. And the invest bit is pretty obvious. You know, you've got to, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and you've got to be prepared to, to put in place the processes, procedures, people to, to, to get to the bottom of it. And then you need to, to keep in the inspect phase, you've got to keep looking at your supply chain and investigating it and not trusting anybody. And, and that is all, that all costs, costs money. It costs time. And ultimately that's what, that's what you need to do. And I, I, I'd like to see much more bilateral discussions going on between the UK government and counterparts in in labor source countries are actually trilateral discussions between the uk government say nepal government and then say the government of qatar to to do more or to to ensure that migrant workers are not being exploited in in commercial supply chains so uh, i guess my answer is that it's difficult but it's not impossible you know we've shown with fsi that it's perfectly doable if you put the time and effort and money in and actually, you get a much better result. And apart from anything else, you, you, the, in terms of building loyalty amongst your among, amongst your the, the people that you recruit, it's much better if you can not exploit them. <laughs> you know, if you can if you can recruit, as I said at the very beginning, you recruit them as you and I would like to be recruited. You manage them as you and I would like to be managed. Guess what? You know, there's a huge amount of of loyalty and uh, and and respect that, that then follows, and and that translates back into the bottom line because I mean, FSI has a very, very low turnover rate of staff. Uh, no, not least because it treats them well, you know, which is not rocket science. Well, James, thank you so much for sharing these insights. If I'm to summarize in a couple of words, uh, I, I would say from what you're saying, the emphasis really needs to be on these final two, you know, more investment and, and more inspection if we're to ultimately solve this issue. We look forward to hopefully uh, seeing your PhD uh, thesis someday soon and, and more of your work so <laughs> in the future. Thanks Thank for you. having me, Chris. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.